When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Mini Break, your daily podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Wednesday, June 7th, day 11 of the 2023 French Open, now officially in the books. What does that mean for all of you tennis fans? It means we know who the eight players will be that will compete in our French Open men's and women's single semifinals. Wednesday, of course, saw the back half of our quarterfinal round of action. Now, I'd be lying to all of you listeners if I said it was a dramatic day of tennis. Yes, we did have Beatrice Haddad Maya overcome a match point deficit to advance to the semifinal round. That said, three of our four results never truly in doubt. That fact, though, does not mean there wasn't plenty of intrigue, plenty of suspense, plenty of things for us to discuss coming off of day 11 at the French Open here on today's show. As such, that's as always what I plan on doing for all of you listeners here today. Now, I want to start with our men's singles action. Certainly the most anticipated match of the day belonged to the battle between Casper Ruud and Holger Runa. Now, that match was a dud until it wasn't. The first two sets, Holger Runa really struggled to find the court on just about every shot that he hit, the serve in particular. I suppose those struggles were the most pronounced, but... Look, when Rude Runa got good, it got very good. I thought the level of play down the back half of the third set and throughout the course of the fourth, I thought it was a really high level. I thought that match delivered to some extent. Now, again, the opening sets were disappointing. I'll elaborate what, on what I mean here on today's show. Ultimately, got to give a shout out to Casper Root as he's through to a second consecutive semifinal at the French Open. Four set victory for Root. We'll break that down here on today show, talk about the mechanics of Alex Zverev's four-set win over Tomas Martin Echeverry. Look, every time I watch Zverev play, he's a little bit more spry in and out of the corners. He's hitting so aggressively when he does choose to step inside the baseline, and he's executing that game plan with such success. I don't think I've ever seen him volley as well as he did today against Tomas Martin Echeverri. Again, a four-set victory for Zverev, his third consecutive French Open semifinal. It really keeps him alive from a rankings perspective in terms of accomplishing the things he wants to accomplish throughout the course of this season. Not the things most mortals want to accomplish in pro tennis, but for a Zverev who has won five Masters titles, who's won two World Tour finals, who's won an Olympic gold medal, who's done everything but in this sport except win a major. You want to win a major, it really helps to be a top 10 seed. If you want to be specific, top four seed where you don't have to play more than one, two of the big dogs, hopefully in any given event. 
Zverev, given the injury, how much time he missed last season, the fact that he had to defend semifinal points at this event, this was a massive result for Alex Zverev. It was a massive moment for him, dare I say a small inflection point at this stage of his career. And simply put, to summarize here in the intro, we passed the test, and I'll explain what I mean. Here on today's show, we'll start with our men's single semifinals. Again, Root over Runa, Zverev over Echeverry. Then I want to get into both today's women's quarterfinal battles as well as tomorrow's women's semifinal matches. Look, two different scripts in today's quarterfinals. The Svantec Goff match, it felt a lot like Siti Paz Alcaraz in as well as Coco Goff managed to play. As impressive as some of the tactical adjustments she made, particularly coming out of the gates, were, it's just structurally such a difficult matchup for Coco Goff. And there's a reason Iga Swiatek is now 7-0 overall against Goff and 14-0 overall in sets. Iga Swiatek, straight set winner over Coco Goff. It was a really good match. I thought the level, particularly in the first set, was particularly high. I thought the things Goff tried to do to and managed to succeed in doing to create some opportunities for herself against Sviantec, they're very replicable, particularly perhaps on more advantageous surfaces. But, man, I don't know if anyone's beaten the—I mean— I think I said that at the start of the tournament. I know our coverage wasn't as rigorous pre-tournament as it typically is, but— I've said this for months. I don't know when the next time Iga Svantec is going to lose at the French Open is. I think it's going to take the best tennis from Arena Sabalenka to beat her. I think that's the only cap- player capable of doing it, and we haven't seen that best tennis or really close to it for a sustained period of time for Sabalenka to where you feel like Iga's are really going to be threatened at this French Open. I mean, did you watch what she did to, I thought it informed Coco Goff today? It was just... It was clinical. That's the best word to describe it. And so we'll get into just another ridiculous performance for Iga. Talk about how ridiculous she's been on this surface throughout the course of her career. What is that at 22 years young? Talk about that match. Talk about what will be, again, an interesting semifinal for her. She is 0-1 in her career, for what it's worth, against Beatrice Haddad Maya. And I mean, what Haddad Maya has done. I understand there was a suspension due to alleged PED use. I am not the arbiter of moral truth, or at least we try not to be here at Cracked. Or I don't. I don't want to say we try not to be. That's just not something. That's just not an area. Again, I guess that is something we try not to be here at Cracked Rackets. And so I'll let you all make your judgments on whether you want to give Haddad Maya the benefit of the doubt or not. There is no denying the fact that no one has had to do more to get to this position, semifinalist at a Grand Slam, than Beatrice Haddad Maya has over the past three years. And that was one of my favorite things to do in 2022 is talk about the 180-plus matches, matches Beatrice Haddad Maya had to play over a two-year stretch to build herself back up into the rankings, get back into the top 50, just get herself a bite at the apple at the best of the best in the pro game. She has made the most of those opportunities. She continues to play week in, week out. And now again, the the missing piece, a big result at a slam. Because she had the big result. She beat Iga in Toronto last year. We saw that as sort of the confirmation that, no, everything we've seen from Haddad Maya is at 125Ks, at 250s, even at 500s. All of that was real and legitimized by her run, perhaps, in Toronto. But this is the feather in the cap. This is the signature run. And to fight off match points against Anjabur, a two-time slam finalist, to get through to your first slam semifinal, 
that would be impressive enough surface level. But man, to watch how she did it, to see how aggressively she said, I'll, I see your slices and it's cute, but this is what you have to do on this to, to hit through this court. And again, we'll get into all of it. I was so impressed by Haddad Maya in her victory over Anjabur. That was clearly your best match of the day. And again, we'll break down all four of the quarterfinals we saw in singles here on today's show. I'll preview our two women's semifinals, not just Sviantek Maya, but dive a little deeper into Sabalenka Mukova as well. Of course, the reason we do this day in, day out here at Crack Rackets is because of the support we get from all of you fans who are so kind in tuning in day in, day out. We always appreciate hearing from you, whether it be on social media, Twitter, Instagram, at Crack Rackets, at A.L. Gruskin. We're always appreciative to those of you who leave a five-star review, to those of you who leave a comment on the Apple Podcast section. It helps us with the algorithm. So if you do have a free two to five minutes, be funny. Have fun with your message. We always appreciate that. Uh, I know our dear friends at Tennis Point appreciate it as well because it drives our numbers. It drives people to their website. And by the way, speaking of Tennis Point, if you need anything to update and upgrade your own game, whether it be clothing, whether it be something racket related, maybe it's a different racket sport. Maybe it's pickleball. Maybe it's padel. Whatever it is you're into, Tennis Point has it covered. Tennis-point.com. Promo code is CR15 for all of the latest and greatest equipment at the best prices in the tennis world. All right. All of that established, let's talk French Open Day 11. Let's start again on the men's side, and I'll blitz through these a little bit quicker because I want to spend some serious time, obviously, with uh, previewing Djokovic Alcaraz again, as well as Rude Zverev tomorrow, but... Look, you can throw out the first two sets from Kasparud, Holgaruna. The first two sets going 6-1-6-2 in what was ultimately a 6-1-6-2-3-6-6-3 win for the fourth seed from Norway. You can throw out the first two sets. You know what we learned from them from a tennis perspective? Absolutely nothing. And that happens sometimes. But look, in a set where... Holgaruna, set number one, fires five double faults. He makes just 55% of his first serves. He goes eight of 20 on points on serve. He is broken in, what, two of his three service games? We didn't learn anything. Like, again, 18 unforced errors against five winners for Holgaruna. Kasparud was up 6-1, I think, 2-love or 6-1, 3-love, whatever it was before he hit his first forehand winner. Again, Kasparud, whose game is predicated on dictating with his forehand, didn't hit a forehand winner till the second set. He didn't need to hit a forehand winner. Runa was spraying everywhere. And credit to Kasparud, the single biggest compliment I can offer him coming out of set number one was how disciplined he was. The depth of on the return of serve, that ball was past the service line on 90% of returns of serve. That ball landed, I would say, three quarters into the court with pace. with Not not pace, but with action on the ball. It wasn't just a floating slice for Runa to sit on. No, he had Runa had to do something with the ball. And that's where the errors came from because Runa felt under so much pressure after Root hit the return of serve, and you saw the inside-out forehand really, the forehand in general just betrayed him in sets one and two. And you look for Hogaruna in set one, I mentioned the 18 unforced errors. Set two, he had 12 unforced errors. 30 unforced errors in sets one and two, hit 47 total for the match. He was bad in, in the first two sets, and, you know, 
<laughs> I was going to make a joke and say lesser commentators might just describe that to nerves and, you know, again, given the off-court extracurricular activity between these two, what happened the last year, the fact that Rude had play, uh, Runa had played Rude more than any other opponent in his career thus far, it's a rivalry. Holger Runa is still 20 years old. He's young. He came out a little, starstruck's the wrong word, but obviously he came out a little bit shaky. And the unforced errors, and perhaps most pertinently and importantly, the serve, continue to betray him. And you just can't do that against a Casper who's playing his best tennis of the year. There's no doubt about that at this 2023 French Open. And I know set number one, he had two winners against 10 unforced errors. But the 10 unforced errors were just like, yeah, I might as well take a rip here. I'm up 15-40. Or yeah, I'm going to take a shot here because it's 40-15 or 40-love in my service game. And I want to see if this backhand down the line is loose. Or I want to see if I can really rip this short angle on my backhand as opposed to just try to roll it cross-court. There was not a single out-of-body, uncharacteristic, uh, uh, an unacceptable unforced error, I should say, really, out of Casper Ruud. In the first two sets, he allowed Holger or he took advantage of what Holger was affording him. Again, the countless unforced errors. And, you know, set number two, Holger uh, the pace on his first serve just it went down five to seven miles per hour. He started rolling that ball in and credit to Casper who remained disciplined on that return of serve in the second set. Eight winners against six unforced errors for Rude in set number two. He was, I think, a pretty efficient what? You look overall three of four at the net. I mean, he didn't have to go to the net. Again, sets one and two were not good. There's your synopsis, is every time Casper played a ball with depth, with pace in particular, got Runa stretched to a corner, Runa would spray. And you want to look at the rally analysis? Fine. Set number one between these two. You know, Rune is plus nine on the zero to four shot rallies. He's plus four on the five plus shot rallies. Set number two, same deal. You know, Rude plus one on the zero to four shot rallies. And credit to Holger. That's when he started to calibrate things, especially towards the end of that second set. But Rude plus eight on the five plus shot rallies. Again, the errors would come later on in the rally. But the, and and again, I, I believe if my memory serves me correct, you look to set number three. Holger Runa actually goes down a break. In uh, Runa goes up a break to love. He's up three love, uh, four one. Excuse me. In the second set, I, I said Runa goes down a break. Runa goes up a break right away. Is what I meant to say uh, to start that third set. And you could just feel that he had started to wake up. And statistically, you know, again. Obviously, that set's going to look best for him. 16 winners against 10 unforced errors, 11 of 13 at the net. He won 72% of his first serve points. But it was the same aggression we saw from Holgaruna in sets one and two. The difference was he was just executing. He was offering himself better chances with his plus one ball. He seemed to have calibrated the heaviness of that Casper Ruud forehand and was doing such a better job both, A, redirecting it on his forehand wing into, you know, when Ruud would go heavy cross-court forehand, the Runa inside-out forehand really didn't start working until the end of set two. But then, B, I mean, he just started hitting his backhand much more willingly and dare I say downright flawlessly down the home stretch of set number three. And look, sets three and four were just an absolute battle. There were two breaks apiece overall between the two sets, one from Runa in set number three, one from Rude 
in set number four. And the biggest issue for Holgaruna uh, made an appearance once again in the deciding set. He made 39% of his first serves uh, in the deciding set. You're never going to win a Grand Slam quarterfinal match or a set in a Grand Slam quarterfinal match that sees you making just 39% of your first serve. I mean, again, it's simple analysis, but it was the little things that continued to bite Holgaruna because did any of you watch the ending of that match? Runa serving down 2-5, goes up 30-love only to make a couple of loose unforced errors and you know, the 30-all point, he's trying to hit a tweener and, you know, he's trying to hit these cute drop volleys and gets a little too cute on the 30-15 point as well, trying to go cross-court when the line was just, you know, Kasparud had conceded the line, but Runa tried to go with the cute error and Rude was there. And yet Runa kept attacking. Runa fights off a match point with a beautiful plus one backhand redirect down the line. He fights off another match point by pushing forward, making a couple of overheads and sustain uh, and withstanding a defensive push from Casper Rude on that point. Runa didn't go away. And it's a credit to Casper Rude who played a flawless final service game. I mean, they should be teaching what he did 5-3 up in the fourth in clinics across the globe for the next week. Just first serves, first forehand, high percentage, body or you know slight T, but I'm not trying to paint lines with these first serves. I'm trying to hit my spots to set things up and, and unreturned, two unreturned serves and a couple of flawless you know plus one setups. And Kasparud closes the match out, 6-3 in the third. And I know I've focused a lot on what Holger Runa has done wrong thus far in this analysis. That That's the story of this match, is that Runa was, again, incredibly inconsistent to start this match. And he just built himself too big of a deficit to where when he finally started playing well, the, you know, Kasparud was too close to the finish line. And it's a credit to Kasparud who rose. Kasparud's best set was set number four as well for what it's worth. And, you know, for Rude overall, 32 winners against 29 unforced errors. He let the match come to him. Didn't try to force things or get uber aggressive or, you know, again, go for heat check winners because Runa was struggling so much. No, Rude was said, thank you for the errors. I will take them. He's moving his forehand so well around the court. More than anything, he's just moving better than he's moved all season long. He's hitting his backhand fluidly with better depth. I think he's hitting ele- his elevated backhand return, which just buys him time to find a first forehand early in a rally. I thought he hit that extraordinarily well against Runa. And again, so many of Runa's errors came early in rallies in sets number one and two. Casper's playing great ball. And you look for Casper Rude now, who with this victory, currently sitting at number 10 in the points race, but perhaps most importantly, has protected himself in the live rankings back up to number five overall. And he gets one more match victory. Obviously, he's back in a semi, so he'll have retained all of the points from last season and subsequently retain his number four ranking, take it back from Tsitsipas. But that this is who Casper Rude is. You look for him now since the start of 2021, he's 128 and 50 overall over the course of two and a half years let's not forget he's made the tour finals in each of the last two seasons you look for him now at the slams over this stretch of time Casper 24 and 8 overall at the slams he's made two finals now another semi-final under his resume as well I mean you look for him against you want it against top 
20 opponents during this stretch of time too. Fine. Casper against the top 20 since the start of 2021, 24 and 22 overall. He's 8 and 16 against the top 10. And there are a lot of Djokovic or Nadal, Alcaraz losses in that mix. Kasparud's one of the guys, if not in the inner circle, certainly on this. He's a top eight guy. It's as simple as that. And he's done it for three years now or two and a half years consistently. Turns 25 at the end of this season. Again, we're in the middle of his prime or in the middle of his prime. Excuse me. We're reaching the ascension towards where he is in the middle and has that three to five year peak window where he's playing his best tennis multiple seasons consecutively. And this is what he's done in the run-up to that. Again, you want to look from a numbers perspective for Casper Ruud. Is he holding serve quite as frequently as he was last season? Not yet, but once the numbers from this French Open are applied to his 2023 numbers, you look for Casper Ruud now. The hold percentage uh, overall here uh, on the season now up to 84.2%, uh, which is a percent below where he was last year, but still a top 25 number. Perhaps most importantly, after the early season struggles, the break percentage has steadied 23.1%, which is just about his career average. And again, a top 25 number. Casper is really good. Unless you have pace to exploit that forehand and pressure it uh, on the serve, unless you can really get him stretched in that backhand corner the way someone like Rafa is just so perfectly built on doing, he's not going to give you anything for free. It's not going to go away easy. And so, again, I hadn't done a lot of Kasparud coverage here in this tournament because he has made things look relatively easy. Again, wins over Emer in three, Zepieri, Jung Zhijian in four, and now uh, now Hogaruna in four, Nikolasi Yari in three. He's back into another semifinal, his third at a major in his career, 25 years old, extraordinarily impressive. On the flip side, Hogaruna's 30 and 10 to start his year. 30 and 10. He's won 75% of his matches. He turned 20 at the end of April. You look at just the results, and again, this is a Hogaruna who made a slam at a quarterfinal last year, who did end the season final Sofia, title in Stockholm, final in Basel, title in Paris. This is a guy who made a top 10 debut as a teenager. So much has been expected of Hogaruna. Well, not only is Hogaruna one of just four players to rank top 15 in both hold and break percentage, but let's just talk about the results quickly here this year. Australian Open round of 16, Monte Carlo final, Munich title, Rome final, Roland Garros quarterfinal. Made round of 16 Miami, round of 32 Indian Wells. Yeah, those are two disappointing results. But in, you know, four of the six biggest tournaments of the year thus far, he's gone round of 16 Australia, quarters Roland Garros, finals Monte Carlo, finals Rome, and he threw in a Munich title to add to it. That's a top 10 player. That is a special profile for a guy who turned 20 years old a month ago. Holgerun is going to be fine. He played two bad sets. That happens at 20 years old. That would be my final Runa takeaway. The better take, again, the biggest take, the steadiness of Kasparud prevails. He is through to another semifinal where he will take on Alex Zverev. And look, this one I will go through much more quickly because we have talked more th- uh, thoroughly, I suppose, about Zverev so far at this event. He's moving well. He's serving well. He's aggressive. You look for me, won 78% of his first serve points, 45 winners against 45, uh, uh, 44 unforced errors, but perhaps more pressingly, 38 of 54 at the net. And I mean, his serve wide, I don't want to say slice serve because it's a pretty fat, flat, but 
His serve wide on the deuce side to set up the first strike to the Echeverry backhand to close the net behind that first strike. That pattern worked every time Alex Zverev landed a first serve on the deuce side. Similarly, on the ad side, first serve T to the Echeverry forehand, first strike to the Echeverry backhand, or mixed in the backhand down the line, which he hits as well as anyone not named Novak on the ATP Tour. First volley at the net, first overhead, whatever it may be. That was the winning p- pattern. He played six foot six big man tennis when he was playing winning tennis. Now, nine double faults, 15 of 38 on second serve, tentative, tentative second set. It was the same issues for Zverev that always appear when things go astray for him, particularly in matches, it feels like at Grand Slam, but honestly, matches everywhere. That said, he refound his aggression at the end of set number, uh, throughout set number four. And after nearly breaking for an early break lead in the fourth, Echeverry held. Zverev was, you faced multiple break points. I think it was his one two service game in the fourth. Fights all of them off, three of them with approach shots moving forward or first volleys finished off. Hit a beautiful low forehand volley where he just got low. And re- my coach used to always say, respect the neck, Alex, and dip your knee and get low as you're hitting that ball. Your, ball, your body should follow the racket. Zverev did exactly that. And look, Atchevery played great. Forehand to cannon. I thought he did well to take his backhand down the line to keep Zverev honest. That backhand down the line pass is clearly the one Atchevery is most comfortable with. And credit to Zverev. He started anticipating it when moving forward. Atchevery showed gumption. Every set was competitive. He never rolled over physically. He pushed Zverev in every game, on every point. Zverev had to work throughout the course of this three-hour, 22-minute, 6-4-3-6-6-3-6-4 victory. Zverev was also the better player from the start. Like, he played a shaky second set. That's why he lost it. But he recentered, refocused. Again, the aggression he played with down the home stretch of the fourth. That's the sort of tennis we saw from Alex Zverev at last year's French Open. And most impressive, just the physicality. He's moving lights out again. He's getting to the ball in his corners, and he's able to hit through that ball instead of have to slice because he is a half-second slow. Zverev's back. That's the highest compliment I can offer coming out of this 2023 French Open, where, again, he's gotten straight set wins over Harris, Mulchan, Dimitrov, four sets now over Tiafo and Echeverri. Zvira belongs in the semifinals. He's up to 13th in the points race. He's back up to number 23 in the live rankings. One more victory. He'll be back up to 18 and inside the top 20. But even at 23, I talk so frequently about how tough the cutoffs are at grass court events. Zvira's getting into everything he wants to play. He's seated at the slams, and he has zero points to defend the rest of the year. Top 10, Alex Zverev collision course. And... Again, it's well-deserved for Zverev, given the level he's shown here this year. Now, for Echeverry, you know, you look for him in 2023 now, 26-15 and 15 overall, finals in Santiago, finals in Houston, you know, now quarterfinals here at Roland Garros. Tomas Martin Echeverry leaves this tournament 19th in the points race and had a new career high of 32 in the live rankings. 23 years old. Now, so much of his success has been on clay. And you do wonder, much like Sebi Baez experienced last year, might there be a little bit of a hiccup as he goes through all of these summer hardcore events? I honestly don't think so. Why wouldn't his game work 
on a slow, gritty hard court, or even a medium speed hard court where he can dictate with his serve, with his forehand, with how well he moves in and out of corners. I know his forehand backswing is big. It's not monumental, and there's no massive hitch. I don't think the 23-year-old's going anywhere. I think he's going to be a top 50 presence pretty consistently throughout the course of this decade. 23 years old, best tennis ahead. He's top 25 good on clay. How good is he on the other surfaces? That's what we'll look to see. I mean, he volleys well. He moves forward well. The forehand backswing might be an issue on grass courts, but guess what? We'll get the opportunity to see that now as, again, Echeverry into the top 35 for the first time in his career. And again, Zverev versus Rude, Alcaraz versus Djokovic. Seeds aside, and Rude, Alcaraz, Djokovic, three of the top four seeds, but if I would have told you at the start of 2022, pre-Zverev injury, that like, yeah, it'll be a rude Zverev-Alcaraz-Djokovic semifinal at the 2023 French Open because Nadal's injured. You'd be like, yeah, I believe it. That's what it should be. Like, through all the parody, through all the chaos, dare I say, things settling in at the top of men's tennis. So it's, it's the right names. It's the right matchups. I think it's going to be a really fun home stretch to this men's event. And obviously, again, we'll talk about that more tomorrow. But with all of that said, let's move over now to the women's singles draw. Let's talk Iga Goff. And again, I think this assessment's going to be pretty blunt and fairly brief. Iga's just better at everything than Coco Goff. And it's it's a little bit like the Spider-Man meme in that Goff looks across from the net and sees someone hitting a beautiful sliding into her backhand with depth, with pace, cross-court down the line, can hit all the angles on that backhand wing. Someone that's a little weird forehand grip, but God, when you give Iga time, the heavy topspin she's able to create, and again, the inside-out angle she's able to create, the, def- the defense she's able to play on that wing. Goff's like, yeah, I can do things like that, but obviously Ika just does them at a higher level right now. And so coming into the match, the question was, what was Coco Goff going to do to adjust? Well, there was two things she did from the start very clearly. A, hit every second serve return on top of or inside the baseline and just take aggressive swings and be someone who's dictating and just not allow Ika to ever hit a ball with her feet set. Arena Sabalenka and Elena Rabakina have shown us that's the recipe. That's how you have to do it. And, I mean, credit to Goff, who goes down an early break but gets that break right back. And, you know, three-all, four-all, really fun tennis through the opening stages of that first set as Goff's taking every backhand return, heavy down the line, just taking time away and, again, swinging through that ball so thoroughly. What was the adjustment number two is every time she got stretched to the forehand, what did she do? High and heavy, you know, high meaning highly elevated over the net, heavy top spin, loopy ball into that Iga Svantec backhand to at least buy herself some time. A, to recover, and B, say, all right, Iga, I know how well you absorb redirect pace on that backhand wing. Let's see you generate some pace of your own. Here's the problem. Iga was able to do it. Yeah, there were for a few unforced errors throughout the course of the first set, and overall in the match, Iga, I mean, it's crazy that overall still 19 winners against 15 unforced errors. How many of those unforced errors came in set number one? Of the 15, yeah, 12 exactly came in set number one. There were some unforced errors early on, sprang a little bit wide, or more often the mistakes for Iga came long early on as she was trying to generate that pace. The problem was Iga saw really clean looks 
on the Coco Golf second serve. And, and the real problem was that the biggest piece of the equation for Coco Golf was always going to be she had to serve well, have to put first serves in play, have to do some dictating behind that first serve, because without landing the first serve, how are you going to take the big cuts like Coco Goff was able to do on the return of serve? Goff made just 48% of her first serves in this match. You're never going to beat Iga Sviantek making just 48% of your first serves, even if you're, you know, uh, even if you're, excuse me, Arena Sabalenka. And so, look, I mean, again, Credit to Goff. I liked the tactical adjustments she made. I like how often she was pushing forward to the net. 8 of 14 overall. I don't think that does justice to how frequently she was pushing forward when a Sviantec error, uh, you know, a forced error would emerge. But man, Iga's uh, so good. <laughs> I don't know how else to say it. Like, she's just so good on this surface. I... I've never seen someone be as fluid hitting on the move and sliding into her shots and the depth she's able to generate, just everything she's able to do out of that ad side corner, particularly off the backhand wing. I mean, the problem with the the elevated forehand was it worked for a few games and then it stopped working entirely. And it was just back to the same equation of every time Iga Sviantek was able to play with heavy topspin into that Coco Goff forehand, Goff would leave the ball short. Iga has a short ball. Iga wins the point. And that's what Iga Sviantek does now. 64-9 and nine in her career on clay courts. 64-9. and nine. Just one match on clay since the start of last season. It's hilarious. Who are her nine losses to? Herzog in three. Mukova in three. Halep one and oh. Roos five and, excuse me, six and three. Barty five and three, uh, five and four. Sakari four and four. Garcia 6-4 in the third, Sabalenka 6-3 in the third, Rabakina retired 2-all in the third. Yeah, you got to be one of the five best players in the world if you want to have any shot of beating Iga on clay courts. And even then, you better have overwhelming power tennis. You better serve your absolute best because if not, I mean, Iga's just going to give you the business. And now from since the start of last season, Iga 115. She won 100 matches in in. 17 months, 115 overall. It's an 87% win percentage. You look for her at the slams. Now she's 29 and three. She's gone semis, title, third round, title, fourth round, semis. She just turned 22, just turned 22. And it's another, you know, three consecutive semis for her, three semifinals in her first four appearances, excuse me, at the French Open. The other two players to do that, Monica Seles and Chris Everett. Is that good? I'm not sure. I don't study the history of the game. Is that good company for her to keep? I think so. Yeah, it's a pretty good company. For Iga Sviantek to be keeping already the fifth youngest player to three slam titles in WTA Tour history, the where we'll leave it is that she looks well on her way to a fourth. And look, if you're Coco Goff coming out of this, 23 and nine overall uh, on the year, you know, starts out round of 16 in Australia, quarterfinals Roland Garros. She wins a title earlier in the year in Auckland, semifinals Dubai, quarterfinals Indian Wells, round of 16 Stuttgart. I don't know. A couple of losses, three, a couple of three sets losses to players like Boskova, Potapova, Kudermatova so far this year. I don't think there's been a bad loss. Like, 
Bojkova in three sets on clay is a tough loss, just in general, I suppose. But it's Rome, and it's a little different surface. But her losses this year, Ostapenko, Kunermatova, Iga, Iga, Sabalenka, Potapova, Potapova, Bedosa, Bojkova. Other than Bojkova, like, again, I don't think any of those are bad losses. Now, you know, again, how many good wins does she have this year? That's a different question. You look for her now 2-5 and five against the top 20. She's beaten Kudermatova and Kvitova. She destroys everyone she's supposed to. 21-4 and four against players ranked outside the top 20. If you don't have heavy topspin to hurt Coco Goff's forehand, you're not beating her anymore. And again, I do think she has gotten better here this year on the margins at everything. The problem is the elite right now, Iga, Sabalenka, Rabakina, they all have the exact weapon you want to knock off Coco Goff. And how she goes about, you know, again, this is a Goff who, what, turns 19, or turned 19 years old this year. She's got a decade to figure it out, a decade plus to figure it out. Who knows? Maybe even half a decade, and then those players will be out of the game, and it will be her time to rule. More than half a decade, because Iga just turned 22, hopefully more than half a decade. I am not selling my Coco Golf stock. I'm selling my Coco Golf stock against Iga. Like, she's not beating Iga on clay anytime soon until something dramatically shifts. But I'm not selling any of my Coco Golf stock, and I imagine most of you aren't either. That said, credit to Iga, 4-2. Uh, again, she's now 7-0 against Goff in her career. All 14 sets won by Iga Sviantek, who advances again to another French Open semifinal, where now she will face first-time slam semifinalist Beatrice Haddad Maya. And a reminder, Haddad Maya suspended from July 2019 till the resumption of play post-pandemic in August 2020 since that resumption of play. She's played 234 matches. 234 matches in just under about three seasons total of play. 80 matches a year? Like, come on now. That's ridiculous. And, you know, first, obviously, semifinal for Haddad Maya in the slams. 3-6, uh, 7-6, six, 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 victory. She knocks out Anjabur. Obviously, the most notable fact from this match is the fact that Anjabur had multiple match point chances. And for those of you who perhaps missed the match, those match point chances did come in set number two, Anjabur serving. And I do apologize, by the way. I think I said earlier Haddad Maya fought off match points. It wasn't match points. It was the break points she fought off. Down 6-3, 5-all in that second set against Anjabur. There have been so many matches from NCAAs, from this French Open in my head. I apologize. That's going to happen from time to time. Anyways, not match points, break points. Five all down is Haddad Maya serving 6-3, five all in that second set. Obviously, you look for Haddad Maya to go down in that five all service game, 15-40. You know, for Haddad Maya, who had played three sets in her last three matches against Schneider, Alexandrova, and then, of course, the nearly four-hour battle with Cerebez Tormo. You just felt like, okay, the clock striking midnight, that all the drop shots Anshabur has played, that all the short angles Anshabur has played, that all the on-the-sprint the, on the hitting Haddad Maya had had to do, maybe it all just started to add up. It didn't. And then not only does Haddad Maya lose multiple set point chances, or maybe it was just a single set point in what was a marathon 5-6 service game for Shabur, she comes out swinging 
in both the second set break and then throughout the course of the third set. I mean, Haddad Maya's both tolerance moving forward and then lack of patience for the Jabir slices and drop shots. Haddad Maya was swinging freely. I mean, Haddad Maya, 38 winner, uh, excuse me, 28 winners in this match, 18 of 28 at the net. Every return of serve as well in the third set just blitzed down the line, very similar to what Iga was doing to Coco Goff, just playing with heavy pace into, into the body and down the center of the court to set up the next shot. Um, I mean, Haddad Maya was just... She caught Jabur, like she forced Jabur to blink. And look, Jabur had a million chances in the third set as well. And, you know, multiple long deuce games, three love or three one and four one. It just like the middle of the set was right there, especially after Jabur, I believe, broke for three one. She was serving for two three to make it a single break deficit, had opportunities to narrow that scoreline two two three. But Haddad Maya is able to get that additional break, extend things to four one close things out from there. I mean, again, for someone who had played like nine hours of tennis in just the three rounds prior to this match for Haddad Maya to move as well as she did moving forward and just, it felt like she was so comfortable hitting approach shots throughout the final two thirds of this match. It just felt like she was so confident in hitting every spot as well, forehand cross, backhand line. It didn't matter. I mean, Haddad Maya was there she was excellent. All the credit in the world uh, to Beatrice Haddad Maya, who, again, to lose your ranking and now for Haddad Maya to work her way all the way up to a new career high, number 10 in the live ranking. She's eighth in the points race. She's got a lot of points to defend from the end of last season to Lynn quarterfinal, Tokyo quarterfinal, Puerto Rose quarterfinal, obviously, uh, title in Birmingham, semifinal in Eastbourne, and then the final in Canada. But now she's a slam semifinalist. And, you know, again, for the now 27-year-old to have this result at this point of her career, given everything she's gone through, and to do it in the fashion that she did, just to go down swinging. I mean, the heaviness of that lefty cross-court ball, her willingness and ability to absorb pace and change direction off of both wings, she's plenty comfortable approaching down the line. I was so thoroughly impressed by Beatrice Haddad Maya. And just, again, the tenacity she played with, the fearlessness she played with. That would be the best way to describe it uh, against Anjabur. Truly impressive. Now for Jabur, 38 winners, 42 unforced errors. She can't abandon the slice because it's so core to her identity, but it just wasn't working against Haddad Maya, and neither was the second serve. I mean, Haddad Maya feasted on second serves, particularly down the home stretch of the match. And again, for Jabur, she only made 51% of her first serves. Now, let's be clear. Jabir's dealt with injuries all season long, and she's steadied the ship now. 15-7 and seven overall on the year. She's up to 13th in the points race. She's steadied thing at 6th overall in the rankings. Now, obviously, has a ton of points to defend down the season's home stretch, but, you know, she's in re- she was in real jeopardy given how many points she lost from the 1,000-level clay court events and how many she still had to defend of really a precipitous drop down the rankings. You can only fall so far when you have a slam quarterfinal under your belt. So really for Jabur, who again has played fewer than 25 matches so far through five-eighths or three, no, four, half of the season. We're done with the French Open. Through half of the season, she steadied the ship. 
and and she played well. Just again, I, I think it was just Hadad Maya who had a really good game plan of play your slices. I'm going to hit through it anyways. She advances to her first slam semifinals. And look, it's tasty semifinals as we set up Thursday's action day 12 of the French Open. Sabalenka, Mukova, Sviantek versus Hadad Maya. We'll start with Sab's mooks. You look for Arena Sabalenka, 1-0 in the career head-to-head. Now, it was a lifetime ago, 2019, October. The uh, Sabalenka, a win in Zhuhai, 7-5-7-6. Obviously, for both players, injuries, or for Sabalenka, I suppose, her ascension to the very top of the women's game. And for Sabalenka, who's now made the semifinals or further in five of the last seven slams that she's played and un. Not unprecedented, but the sort of Hall of Fame stretch run you see from a player as they begin that sort of ascent. And, of course, Sabalenka it really is the oldest 24-year-old we've ever had on the WTA Tour. I think she just turned 25 years old. And I don't know. If you told me she was 27, 28, it just feels like she has been a, a part of our lives since that 18, 19 season. So, what, like four, five, six, maybe full years now? Um Sabalenka is the favorite, no doubt about it. You look for Arena Sabalenka overall here in this 2023 season. I mean, the record speaks for itself. She's your 2023 WTA Tour wins leader right now. A ridiculous overall record of 34 and five. She, I've said it, five semifinals in her last seven slams played this year. You look at her results: wins Adelaide, wins Australian Open. Finals Indian Wells, quarters Miami, finals Stuttgart, title Madrid. Obviously, the first round loss to Sonia Kennan in Rome seems weird, but she hasn't dropped a set at this 2023 French Open. Straight set wins over Kostyuk, Shaimanovic, Rakimova, Stevens, and Svitolina. Now, she's had more unforced errors than winners in all but one match that she's played. The one match, Rakimova 2-2 two and two in the third round. It's been streaky. I mean, she was up 5-love in the first set on Sloan Stevens. That set goes 7-6. She, it was just up and down throughout the course of her match against Svitolina. Goes down 2-love in the first, rips off four straight games. Things sort of narrow there at the end. She hasn't played the lights-out ball we saw in Madrid, the lights-out ball we saw in Stuttgart or Australia throughout the course of this slam. And yet, she's managed matches very well. When she's needed to put returns in play from a scoreboard crunch perspective, she has put those returns in play. She has found the big line. And perhaps most importantly, her pace, as it has all year long, continue to overwhelm every opponent that she faces. Now, look, Carolina Mukova, I mean, ELO rating, she's a top 15 player this season. Points race now, she's up to number 10 overall. You look at the live rankings, the 26-year-old up to a new career high or tying that career high, number 19 in the live rankings. She's back where she belongs, following all sorts of injuries and all sorts of uh, sorts of turmoil, sorts of I overcame obstacles, I overcame whatever uh, that term is. You all know the word I'm thinking of. It'll come to me eventually. Anyways... Mukova's 24 and 7 overall in the year. I mean, adversity, that was the word. 24 and 7 overall in the year. She's won 77% of her matches. That's not the two thirds rule. That's exceptional play. Quarterfinals, Auckland. Quarterfinals, Dubai. Quarterfinals, Indian Wells. Round of 16, Rome. Semifinals now in Roland Garros. She gets there by dropping just one set. It was a six love set to Podoroska. Other than that, wins over Sakari, Pavlachenkova, Begu, and Avenisian. It's not an easy draw. Like 
Podoroska is a former Slam semifinalist. Sakari semifinal at the French Open. Pavlichenkova's final at this French Open. Mukva has made it look easy. She's serving well. She plays with the sort of aggression and off-speed slice sort of tennis where she can, you know, again, dink and dime and drive and do all sorts of things to make, uh, to make, excuse me, Arena Sabalenka uncomfortable. Get the ball outside of Sabalenka's strike zone. Now, as always, you're going to have to make first serves because any serve that sits up, Sabalenka just destroys. And Mukova does have a bigger forehand ground stroke. It's a little harder to hit the slice when it's coming. The ball is coming at you 100 plus miles per hour. First serves are going to be critical for Carolina Mukova. Now, she's a good enough returner that, again, I think she will have looks on the Arena Sabalenka serve, not regardless of how well Sabalenka serves, because if Sabalenka serves well enough, take the racket out of the hand. It doesn't really matter. I do think Arena Sabalenka just structurally, again, the pace she plays with through that Mukova forehand, I think it's a tough matchup for Carolina Mukova. That said, how slow these courts are, the fact that Carolina Mukova will have a little bit more time to set up the fact that Arena Sabalenka hasn't served particularly well, the fact that Mukova does enough things to get Sabalenka out of center that a Sabalenka who's already been a bit error-prone throughout the course of this fortnight, she'll throw in a few more uh, when she's pushed into the outer thirds, and maybe then you see a frustrated Sabalenka emerge, although even when she's been frustrated, she's just been so locked in this entire year. These are two of your 12 best players. I mean, obviously, Sabalenka is one of your three best players this season, but Mukova belongs in that top 12 conversation. 24-7 and seven overall, the totality of results she's put together this year she belongs back in the mix in the not inner circle but in the bubble of players who just got a shot at every event uh, that they show up to again Sabalenka 1-0 in the career head-to-head I do think her pace wins out I do think the tennis gods are going to bless us they blessed us with Djokovic Alcarez I think they're going to bless us with the Iga Sabalenka slam final we deserve as well I'm going to take Sabalenka I think if Mukova wins the set, it's got to be the first set. I wanted to say 6-3, or 3-6, Yeah, 3-6, We'll go with that. It could also just be a 7-5-6-2 for Sabalenka, where she's down like a— Yeah, you know what? 7-5-6-2 Sabalenka, where she goes down like a break 3-2 or a 4-2 break of serve, but then she goes hold, break, hold for a 5-4 lead and closes things out, 7-5-6-2. So, yeah, Sabalenka in straights. I mean, the pick is Iga in straights as well. I'm not picking against Iga Shviantek on clay courts. Beatrice Adadmaya now, four consecutive three-set matches. Yeah, she does have the gumption to just take big swings. She is a lefty. So, you know, again, she is going to be slightly better at dealing with the pace and the heaviness of that Shviantek backhand than some. She also does a really good job of absorbing and redirecting pace, particularly down the line with her backhand. And that's an interesting wrinkle, as we saw in Toronto, where she just swung freely. And she has that belief. She is one of the few players who can say, hey, I've beaten Iga Sviantek in the past year. But you didn't do it on clay courts. You didn't do it at Roland Garros. And you didn't do it after four three-set victories. At least I don't think Beatrice Adonmaia did. Honestly, knowing Beatrice Adonmaia, she might have needed four three-set victories to get to the final in Toronto. Let's see. Last year in Toronto... Three sets over Trevisan, or well, then straight sets over Fernandez before she played Sviantec. She did ultimately play two more three-set matches in Toronto, but 
I mean, again, Clay Iga is just a different Iga in that ball. You know, again, she's not going to be offering Haddad Maya nearly as much time as Anjabor did. Haddad Maya is going to be pushed on her back foot off that forehand. She's not just—it felt like every time Haddad Maya wanted to, she had a free swing available to her, and it just comes down to sets two and three uh, when she was able to just swing particularly freely. And so—excuse uh, me, sets two and three when she just connected more freely— I'm just thinking for a score here. I know Iga three and two. Iga's going to the final. It's as simple as that. I'm not picking against Iga. I think you'd be crazy too. And I think we're getting the Iga Sabalenka final. We deserve world number one on the line. All sorts of storylines behind it. Yeah, give us the Iga Sabalenka final. We deserve, and that's going to be my prediction for all of you here on this show. That said, that's everything that happened on day eleven of the 2023 French Open. Of course, we will be back every remaining day of this year's second major to recap everything that occurs so you tennis fans feel like you are up to date on everything happening in the tennis world. Of course, why are we able to do that day in, day out? It's because of the support we get from all of you, the support we get from our dear friends at Tennis Point. And by the way, remember, tennis-point.com. The promo code is CR15. And of course, because of the support we get from our super producer, Daniel Westhoff, who has a f- of an editing job to do day in, day out, making all of our content possible. A shout out to him, Tennis Point, Crack Racket CEO, Dalton Thieneman, and of course, all of you listeners who, again, tune in day in, day out. With that said, if you're looking for additional content, our 2023 College Tennis Awards show is about to get up and running. John J. Parsons joining me Wednesday night for our men's show, not uh, women's show. Not entirely sure who's going to join me on the men's award show yet, but we'll have that for you all coming up as well. With all of that said, for our fantastic super producer, Daniel Westhoff, our friends at Tennis Point, from all of us here at both Crack Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. You know what we say. That's the break. We'll talk to you all tomorrow. Thanks, everyone.